This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It has uh, not been a good year for Idaho. Did you see that there was another quadruple homicide in Idaho? I did. That was a very different one. Yeah, it's a very different kind. It hit NBC, and I was like, wait, what? Because I thought, I, I think I had it set up where, so we're not covering like the Moscow University of Idaho killings, but what we are interested in that to some degree, you know, being in the true crime world. This, so I thought it was telling me that there was news in that Idaho homicide, but then the quadruple homicide they're talking about was something completely different. And it really threw me off because what it read like, it says Idaho man accused of killing four lost it after neighbor allegedly exposed himself to family. And I was like thinking in terms of like Brian Koberger, that's exactly what I thought too. But that's not that's not anything to do with it. The person there is actually a guy. He's thirty one years old. His name is uh, Major John Kaler. He said that he snapped and lost it before Kenneth Guardapi, who was sixty five, and then Kenna Guardapi, who is Kenna's daughter, and then Devin Smith and Aiken Smith, who were respectively eighteen and sixteen, got killed in a town called Kellogg. Tim. Stello is the article that popped for me first. He's on NBCNews.com, and that's his headline. But what he uh, describes here is five days before officials say an Idaho man fatally shot four neighbors, one of them allegedly exposed himself to the suspect's wife and daughter. This is according to law enforcement documents that they released on Tuesday, June 20th of 2023. Details of the alleged incident were included in the affidavit in support of the arrest of Major John Kaler on four counts of murder. A uh, lawyer for Kaler did not immediately respond to a request for comment at NBC. According to the affidavit, authorities responded to an investigated a June 13th call about alleged obscene behavior in Kellogg, which is about 37 miles east of Coeur d'Alene. The affidavit doesn't say whether the neighbor whose family lived on the first floor of this two-unit building faced any criminal charges over the alleged conduct. On Sunday evening, Kaler and his wife got into an argument with the neighbor's mother, who is, you know, apparently Kenna Guardapi, and this was over the alleged indecent exposure incident and the possibility that uh, the kid would face the consequences, according to the affidavit. And that's citing... Major John Kaler's wife, who is Kaylee Kaler, she told authorities that she was standing near her husband when she heard gunfire and saw Kenneth and Kenna Guardapi, both of whom were unarmed, fall to the ground. Kaylee Kaler said she then heard more gunfire within the house. She noted that Major John said he did he did what he had to do and to tell their kids he protected them. She overheard him say he had killed all four people. In an interview with authorities, Major John said he snapped and he'd lost it over the dispute, but he declined to comment any further, and he asked to speak to a lawyer. Uh, He also faces one count of 
burglary, according to court records, at Shoshone County. No bail was set for him, and uh, this is sort of a breaking news item that's happening now, but a different Idaho quadruple homicide. What do you think of that? I, you know, I'm not totally sure what the previous incident, I mean, it sounds like he's a hothead, but it also sounds like maybe he was triggered by something real. Now, Major's not a title there, right? No, it's his name. M-A-J-O-R-J-O-N. Major John. Okay. I I just wasn't sure. Um, I've actually never heard that name before, but, um, so he he has young children and we don't know how old they are. No, no, we do not. Um, he looks fairly young. Do, do we know he's, how he's, old he is? He's 31. Okay, so he probably has youngish children at least. Whomever, whichever one of the... I, I, I'm pretty sure it was one of the kids, right? Oh, it's definitely one of the kids. Okay. They say um, they say that it's someone who they talk to their mom. So they would have been talking to the woman in the house. Can okay, I, yeah, I, you're I, right. That, I, that's what I gathered, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't make that up. So, you know, either way, we're talking about um, a couple of teenage boys that, you know, they really shouldn't know better, but we also don't know what happened. The allegation is that one of them exposed themselves in front of um, Major John's family, right? Correct. Um, Now, that can range, you know, what one person uh, considers exposure versus like somebody like peeing on a bush or something. (laughs) We don't know what occurred, right? We don't know that it was like an ill, which, I mean, you shouldn't be peeing on a bush if somebody can see you, but it happens and it's not worth calling the cops over, right? Um, In my opinion. But, so we don't know what the deal is, but apparently he didn't like the fact that they weren't going to be punished with whomever did it. And he took matters into his own hands. Now he's like, you know, tell my children I did what I needed to to keep them safe. And I, you know, I kind of hope that maybe they skip that because I'm not really sure, depending on the circumstances, that you really want your children to know that, you know, the punishment for showing your, exposing your body to other people is death that's a complicated situation for me because both things are depending on like how it all went down both things are wrong but we're talking but we're talking about you know okay i have a 16 year old and i would i would fall over if somebody told me that he had exposed himself to them i would also realize that like there had to be some sort of misunderstanding right uh, he it just wouldn't happen unless it was something accidental. But so if it was in a way that you're, of course, we're talking about like in some sort of like sadistic, like sexual predator type way, right? Yeah, is what you're referring to. And we have no idea if that is even the case, right? But he, the father's making it out like I'm. I'm sorry, John, uh, Major John is making it out like it was going that way, right? Yeah you know, with a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old, but also a father of smaller children, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can happen in between that, right? Yeah. As far as, uh, you know, whether it was an accident, whether it was on purpose, whether it was a practical joke or just, like, boys being, like, silly, right? 
I find it hard to believe that it, uh, I don't know. I, I, I hate to even say that. I just, I want to give the victims the benefit of the doubt here. And I imagine he was mad because the police didn't do anything. And so we have to keep that in mind. So the police, from what we can tell by all the records, nobody was charged with exposure. Um, you know, another thing that could have come into play there is if like, the person was in their own home when it happened, like somebody saw through the window or something. Right. So something, unless something comes up that says they were charged, something deterred the police from acting, right? So they didn't see uh, the criminality behind the offense. Correct. Okay. And so were they just lax? Like, I have a hard time believing that police officers who were called to come out to an incident and who saw a situation where young children were going to be exposed to any sort of sexual uh, predation, right, by anybody. I have a really hard time believing that they wouldn't do something. Do you? I I think the cops, hmm, it, it doesn't matter what I think. I think that the cops potentially would have done something uh, if they felt like the other children were in danger. That's what I mean. And so because of that, uh, you know, it makes me wonder, um, you know, how serious it really was. Now, uh, it wasn't this serious no matter what. And it's unfortunate that it, it escalated like it did and, Essentially, four people died. And so um, Kenneth is Kenna's father, right? Yeah. So he's 65. She's in her 40s. And then she has the two kids. She's living with her dad. Right. Okay. So it's grandpa, mom, and then the two kids. And so they, they were all killed, shot. Like It sounds like execution style. We don't know where they were shot. But they were basically ambushed shortly after this confrontation. And they're all, you know, and it doesn't seem like he even, he had, he made an admission and then requested an attorney and that's kind of backwards, right? Not that I want him to get away with anything, but he can't really take that admission back. And, you know, he deserves to go to jail for this. And it's not, I'm sure he justifies what he did because of what he told his wife, right? Yeah. To tell his children. But, like, that's not justified. So No, it's, it, well, you know, if there had been something in progress where he's stopping something, there's a potential for some self-defense. But when you are, so first of all, he's killing grandpa and mom first, who are probably just protecting their, 16-year-old or 18-year-old, whatever, whichever. And then he goes in the house and kills two children. So you can't protect children by killing children. Well, I agree. Walking over and shooting two of your neighbors, not a good way to start a, a, like a peaceful solution to this. There's no justifying it, but it was... I mean, I've seen people lose their tempers about things and get real. And, you know, I can't say that I, I, I blame them, but this was not the answer, right? Oh, no. You can get mad and, you know, it absolutely is inappropriate, you know, for a teenage boy to be exposing themselves to anyone. And the best thing that um, 
Major John could have done is explain that to his children, right? And have them close their eyes. Yeah. Because you can't control others people other people's behaviors. You can only right, right. control yourself. And it's really hard to say, okay, they expose themselves to you, so I'm going to go kill them. Because it's it's not I mean, I feel like murder is substantially worse than any sort of exposure. Now, as long as it was just exposure. Right. I, I'm not, we're not talking about any kind of assault or anything like that, but I'm saying like him murdering them is much, much worse. I, I don't, man, I get in like weird modes with this a couple of years ago, uh, before the pandemic, um, I had some classmates from like high school days and there was a couple that came out of all of that. Um, a guy and a girl, and they lived next door to another one of my high school classmates. Um, they were slightly younger than me. And I don't know what happened. I was friends with all of them on social media. They weren't people that I was close with. They were just acquaintances. And they lived side by side in a, a pretty big city. And everything was cool. I would see like pictures of them, things going on. I guess they worked together a little bit. And then all of a sudden, one of them walked over and shot the other couple. It was really shocking when it happened. And you have no idea why? No idea. To this day, no idea. The guy took a plea, um, and he didn't explain it. I There were some things I could surmise looking at all the Facebook feeds related to it. Like, I could see where there were different types of hard times going back and forth over the like previous year and a half where they weren't very nice to each other. That's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you do all of them? Yeah, yeah, I knew everybody. So they would have known each other too, like. Yeah, yeah, they they had known each other for years. They were all slightly different in age. I don't know. I think the shooter was four or five years younger than me, and then the others were like staggered in between. And I had like one of them I knew from school, and the other two I knew from like that time after high school, like when you come home and you see people. They were hanging out with people that I knew, and that's how I, I got to know them a little bit. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know them super well. I knew the shooter least of all, but I had met him. And not only that, I had seen him like in the month before the shooting. I had like driven to that town, and I had gone out to have dinner with someone, and I saw him there and like sat at a table where he was having a beer. Um, and then it happened. Yeah. And then it happened and, um, it was shocking. It wasn't like this, uh, did they die? Yeah, they died. Um, yeah, that's very unfortunate. Uh, and you know, it, well, we don't know if it was like this or not. Um, we don't know in this case with, that's um, that's true. Yeah. With major John and Kenneth, Kenna, Devin and, uh, Aiken, Alkin. Aiken. Um, we don't know like what the entire dynamic was. We just have like this one bit of context, which just happens to be that, you know, uh, shortly beforehand, uh, there was a police report filed or a, an incident report. Right. And what, what I was, uh, what I, I said that a little wrong, but what I was going to say was the kids involved in the, there were kids involved in the, 
the one that I was talking about, they were very small, like all of the kids. Um, like all were the kids 10. killed too? No kids were killed. They were all under 10 years old, but they saw their parents get killed. And, and their neighbor. Right. And the neighbor's and kid saw their parent shoot the other parents. I could I could guess what was happening there, but I'm not going to. I don't know. I I, I Well, it, it, my understanding from the people that we all knew together, the, what I was told was there had been a business that everybody worked at at one point kind of prior to this happening and there had been some money that had gone back and forth and one person in the group felt like they got screwed and the other people like turned it into a thing and they and like it never went beyond that and when it came to like court and stuff everything was so fast like the the hearings and whatnot that people described like basically the the guy would walk into court. He made a not guilty plea. Came, um, nothing was released, and then a couple months later, he came back into court and he made uh, there was a there was some kind of plea arrangement where the death penalty wasn't sought, and he got a very long like a, basically the equivalency of a, a life sentence, um, and that was the end of it. Well, I don't know if it's appropriate to ask that. Um, the one that was the um, one going to jail. Was he, did he take, was he accused of taking the money or was he the accuser? It depended on who told you the story. Oh, I see. Well, it was, that's, that is tragic. Um, like, none of, none of that was worth any of that. Yeah. And like, I've, you know, there were so many different rumor mill stories going on at the time. It, it was, it was weird. To be quite honest. And like, you know, I see his, his daughter is also, uh, so one of the deceased people, uh, their daughter is also like my friend on Facebook and they post to him and it's absolutely heart wrenching to their post. They post to their father. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, so I don't know how old she is. She's very young. Um, I did like one or two things for like the family, uh, cause I had some stuff that like they could use cause she got, you know, kind of shipped to relatives and they post to their dad, like messages on his Facebook wall to this day. So, um, that was a very tragic story. This is a tragic story. I just brought it up cause it was interesting that it like ended up in my, my RSS feed, uh, and is not really related to the other Idaho murder, which is weird to me. Right, um, but it like that was uh, excellent on whoever's in charge of the of trying to come up with clickbait. Uh, I, I'm just kind of kidding here, but uh, because the the title of the article is "Idaho Man Accused of Killing Four Lost It After Neighbor Allegedly Exposed Himself to Family," it for one second right makes everybody go. Is this about Brian Cover, right? Um, yeah. That whole situation is um, still. I mean, it's right front and center. Um, I do think, and and this is just my perception. Uh, could be totally wrong, but so Major John, who is the alleged shooter, was thirty one. You got two teenage boys that were shot and killed. Right. Then you've got a sixty five year old man and his forty one year old daughter. And I will tell you. I think that the age differences here 
probably are the biggest contributor to the ending. And the reason I say that is I would have to say that like 41-year-old Major John or 65-year-old Major John would not have shot those kids, right, for probably any reason. And having that in my mind that you only learn things over time, it makes me really sad. Yeah, no, I under, I understand that. I I uh, I've read over the years like some really good arguments for how the brain develops, and criminals should not really be out of the juvenile justice system un, until later. But I I have to say, I I've also seen some very young people commit some very heinous crimes that make me um, have a lot of difficulty arguing uh, for them to just be sort of, of, of let off. And it depends on, on the type of crime. Um, in this instance, nobody wins. This is absolutely going to be a horrible outcome. And I don't well, think it'll stay on the news very long either. Oh, no. Um Essentially, this is a domestic incident, right? I mean, yes. it's they they lived in a sounds like a duplex, right? Um, with one family living in one unit and another family living in another unit, and that's probably another huge contributing factor there. Uh, just to be clear, I'm just saying that like what matters when you're 31, um, it doesn't necessarily matter. At different when you, as you get older, I I certainly don't think that young people who commit um, heinous crimes should get away with it. I I just know that um, it this is a very tragic situation that absolutely could have been handled differently. Yeah, I wanted to use this, I'm, and I'm, I'm not not if you have more to talk about that, I'll talk about it. But it, but you just kind of summed the whole thing up. Um, there's not much. There's not much to. You sort of get into this position where you're like beating a dead horse because. Well, if it hadn't have said uh, the Idaho man accused of killing four, would you have even read it? Actually, that's not even. Oh. You're right, but that's not what grabbed my attention. It said Idaho man accused of killing four lost it after uh, someone exposed themselves. That part, I went, is this something related to like. The, there's supposed to be a, in the other Idaho four case. And supposed to be coming from Koberger's lawyer related to his alibi. They asked for a delay to file his alibi. So I thought this was going to be the defense attorneys in that case had filed his alibi. That's the only reason I read it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have read any further. Um, is so I, I'm not keeping up with that. So are they trying to notice an alibi for him? They ask, so due to local court proceedings, they ask the defense to notice their alibi. And the defense asked for a delay. This was in a, in a more recent hearing. There's not much interesting going on in that case. But I am interested in, if, he is, if he's laying out an alibi, I want to know what it was. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I'm not following this either. Uh, so the court asked for it, or the defense asked for it? The state requested the alibi mm-hmm. and the court agreed that the motion for the defense to file the alibi could be delayed because the defense said it's going to be a minute before we file our notice of alibi or declined to file our notice of alibi. 
Well, uh, I'm not, I I am like just slightly familiar with what that is, but I don't know enough about it to really figure out what's going on there, except probably just wasting time. I don't know either. I I just, all I was going to say was I would be very interested to know, um, you know. What he's going to say. Right. Yeah. So because they had, and and I don't know when this was, it's probably, I I was traveling when it happened. So sometime between the 4th and like the 13th, Ann Taylor filed a motion arguing that they needed more time to go through all of the uh, discovery in order to decide whether they were going to offer up a former alibi as part of Koberger's defense. That's all I'm saying is that if this had been that I was, I was all in, I wanted to know who had exposed who to what. So when that happened, I had read it just for that reason. So what we're actually doing today is we're sort of wrapping up two of the cases that we were running. And this was our true crime news because we, we recently talked about John author Ackroyd. And we had also talked about Bobby Jack Fowler, like kind of leading up to him and how uh, the way those two get intertwined for me is like some of the locations are the same, um, which I think you knew that like there's some overlap. Uh, There's two particular investigators, Linda Snow and Ron Benson, and they kind of are in on both of uh, those cases with uh, John Arthur Aykroyd and uh, Bobby Jack Fowler. But I, I wanted to wrap them up for the audience uh, and we are going to still, we're going to talk to someone who has a little more firsthand knowledge. It's either next week or the week after they'll be on the show with us. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about the the rundown on John Arthur Aykroyd and then on uh, Bobby Jack Fowler. So we know that more than likely uh, John Arthur Aykroyd killed Kay Turner who was the jogger that was um, running uh, near Camp Sherman uh, just before the Christmas holiday in 1978. And we know that his stepdaughter disappeared and was never seen again. And he took some kind of uh, sealed plea deal in that case. What I wanted to ask you about is in the documentary that we both watched and that I recommended everybody else watch, they talk about this, the, the Swanson and Sanders murders. Do you remember the ones I'm talking about there? Yeah, I do. The investigator said that they were preparing to file evidence in that case, which is the Swanson and Sanders uh, murders. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence that kind of went together pretty well there. And we talked about it at, in kind of ad nauseum. But they decided that it was a little too expensive, so they, um, the, the county was not going to be, Lincoln County, Oregon, was not going to be able to sustain it, and they felt like they should hold some of it back in case something happened with the K. Turner case, but the K. Turner case never gets you know thrown out or overturned or has anything go on with it. Um, they also, they, they throw out this list, and I don't think it's in the documentary, but I have the list. Um, uh, it's actually caused me like quite a bit of like insanity because um, I've been trying to figure out how they like put all this together. Uh, there were several other local murders. And so we had uh, Deborah Dyer from 1979. We have Kimberly Moreau, 1980, Pamela Powell. She disappeared in 1982. Uh, Tana Mint, uh, Tina Mincy. Uh, she was in 1982. And then we had, um, Two others, Kimberly Ann Floyd was from 85, and Tracy Ann Winston, she's from 1987. So, Ackroyd comes up one more time because just those names are going to be part of 
uh, an episode soon. Um, we're just going to talk about those cases and like what might have happened to them as part of another episode. Um, but I wanted to know what you think before we get to that point. And, and you, I know you haven't like made a final decision, but generally speaking, uh, do you feel like it's possible that the, the sort of idea of Ackroyd being a more prolific predator came from the investigators themselves? More than likely. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't uh, think he's innocent though. No, no, no. I don't either. That's, that's what makes it so complex. Um, I have seen on multiple occasions in the banter that occurs in, uh, older cold cases, um, specifically about Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson's murders. They both have been accused of this. That's, that's where we're headed with this. Yeah. It's a little weird, right? Well, I mean, they both didn't do it. (laughs) They weren't working together. Right. Um, I find it difficult to make the leap. Now you're right. uh, The documentary does uh, now, I think we talked about this in the episode that just aired. Um, it this case is considered closed. Uh, the murders of Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson. That's according to the documentary, right? Yeah, yeah, that is. And honestly, I don't know how accurate that is. It's just a statement that was made. Um, I have no reason to question it, uh, except that from what I remember, Benson is a uh, he was a he was an investigator for the prosecutor's office, right? For sure. I know he worked for the prosecutor's office because, um, I listened to, uh, I went back through and I, I hunted up some, uh, County commissioners meetings and I found where they're talking about. He was definitely a prosecutor because they referenced these cases. You know, everybody puts those online. Where you He was an investigator for the prosecutor. He, well, they called him a detective for the prosecutor. Prosecutor, sorry, I've said it wrong, but he worked for the prosecutor. Uh, right, I just DA. want to be sure. Like, I mean, he's not an attorney; he's an investigator. So, Correct. Um, okay, so he he would know. It seems like that, um, and I believe he's the one who said the case was considered closed. Uh, it's closed, but not adjudicated. And their position on that was that John Arthur Ackroyd was responsible, and. Is that wrong? No, no, you're right. Okay. um, And there was a, like, very uh, sort of tangential, brief, casual connection made between the two girls and John Arthur Ackroyd. Correct? Actually, I don't know if it was made on the documentary or if I've seen it elsewhere. But um, he he saw them in sort of their... uh, like where they would hang out, where he would hang out and they would hang out. There, there were connections made through people that knew all of them. That you know, it it was entirely possible that um, he knew them at least as acquaintances, right? Yeah. Um, nothing more than that, really. I believe that um, it may have come up that he'd given them a ride. Somewhere, but not necessarily the night they disappeared. If all the information is there, now it's not going to happen now because he's he's dead at this point. Yeah, do you know how he died, by the way? I don't know 100% sure that this is accurate, but 
Do, do you know how it is alleged that he died? A heart attack? No, I think so. I, I found two sources on this. I don't know how accurate it is, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. I read that Ronald Lee Stanford was his cellmate and he strangled him with a bed sheet. Oh, no, no kidding. Yeah, because I, I, uh, I think maybe wickedness.net had it. And then there was another like uh, older true crime blog that had it. And they said that there, somewhere there's court paperwork between Ackroyd's family and the prison system as a wrongful death suit. And yeah, and that's where that information is, is available. I, you know, I've, I realized I really haven't paid any attention to that guy's wiki. Um, so I thought maybe I should, uh, uh, like go and read it, but I didn't. Um, so I pulled it up and I didn't see anything on there indicating that, you know, how he had died, but I did read two different places that his cellmate killed him. And that does not shock me. Yeah, well, I I can find uh, specifically that he was found unresponsive in his cell. I think that's right. possibly all I ever saw, and that's probably why I have it in my mind that it was a heart attack. He was, I don't know how tall he was, but he was huge, right? He was a big dude, yeah. And as far as his size, and so I guess it just never occurred to me that somebody would have killed him somehow. But, I mean, I, I, I buy it. Uh, he, so... From so I didn't know how that he had possibly been strangled. Um, that's interesting though. And is his is the guy who did it? Is he still alive? I think he is. I think he's actually still. Um, I didn't think to check into him more, but I'll bring him up again. I think he's actually doing like a really long sentence, and I I want to say maybe was charged with Ackroyd's death, but it hasn't completed or. It maybe was a manslaughter or something. Um, I will I will pull him up though, uh, and I'll mention him in a future ep- episode. I just didn't do it because I realized I was like, oh, I've never really talked about inmates killing inmates, like kind of after all of this stuff. But I wanted to throw that in because I thought it was interesting. Right, and so um, with John Arthur Ackroyd, which is the same, um, it's the same with Bobby Jack Fowler for the most part. I think um, there's not a whole lot of mainstream media uh, coverage of it, right? Uh, of them and their crimes. However, with John Arthur Ackroyd, I have not seen any case. Well, I, okay, for the most part, every single time he's mentioned, uh, Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson are are included as his victims, right? Yeah, and they're a crossover between the two people. Um, And so that's where I feel like uh, mainstream media sort of gets it wrong. Um, And I'm not saying it's wrong because uh, they're considered to be his victims. I mean, there are people that consider them to be his victims. Um, It's possible they were his victims. But uh, that entire, the process did not occur for those two victims, right? Uh, there was no judicial process that initiated no. or finished to get them justice. No, and so the way that this story is told, I've heard it two different ways. One is that he was a suspect all the way back when he got convicted of Kay Turner's murder. So that's the one story. And then I've heard they were building a case and building a case where 
they were about to go after him. So in the Kay Turner version of the story, they basically say it was going to cost too much money to prosecute Aykroyd for anything else. And that included for, uh, for Chan and Pickle, that included for the double homicide here. Um, but then I've also heard a story where Benson and Snow had prepped paperwork and that paperwork was going through the district attorney's office and it was going to hit Ackroyd. He was going to be indicted on it, but that it got kicked when he died. It wasn't until after his stepdaughter went missing that they actually were able to get enough together to charge him with Kay Turner. Right. Uh, Right. In fact, it was her, it was Rashanda's, uh, disappearance that prompted uh, movement in Kay Turner's case because of the two, they had more on Kay Turner's case than they had on Rashanda's Pickles' disappearance, right? Correct. Um, but they felt like they had to act all of a sudden. Now, it just so happens that Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson, they were killed just shortly before the action was taken on Kay Turner after Rashanda Pickle disappeared. Yeah, timeline wise, so what happened to Kate Turner happens in nineteen seventy eight, but he doesn't end up nothing happens in court for years. Then uh Rashanna Pickle goes missing in nineteen ninety and Ackroyd doesn't even get the plea deal that he pleads no contest to in her case till 2013. Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders, they were murdered in nineteen ninety two. So that's the timeline on it. Like, so that's years between um, these different things happening. And there's another Oregon double homicide that happens in there as well. But that one is even more complicated. And that's in 1995. Uh, in January of 1995, we've talked about them briefly. That's uh, Jennifer Essen and Kara Lees. Their bodies aren't discovered. They're, I think they go missing January 27th. I'm, I'm never clear if it's the 27th or the 28th, like, cause it, you know, it's in the overnight hours and they're found the day after Valentine's day in 1995, but they're also on the list for Bobby Jack Fowler. Yeah. They couldn't possibly be, um, John Ackroyd's because he was already in jail at that point. Right. But in my mind, the double homicide thing, I think we moved it uh, Personally, I think you move Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders over to Bobby Jack Fowler if that's the direction you're going to go. But I don't, you know, we're stuck in this weird boat that's sort of where we're getting to. And we'll get to Bobby Jack in just a second. But sorry about that. I'm, I'm like, these two guys are like forever linked in my mind um, just because of being serial killers after their deaths. Right. And well, I have trouble understanding really how I have trouble understanding how it can be too expensive for the for someone to be prosecuted for murdering two teenage girls um, anywhere in the United States, at least. Well, I think the confluence that's happening there for the person who reported it that way is they were not going to go after Rashanda Pickle as a trial. The Byron Pickle agreed that a conviction was more important than a trial. And that's how they got to 
like like they save some money on that. But if they were, you know, if they're pleading that out and letting them go no contest on that with a super secret plea deal, which is always sketch. Which I don't even think it was for her murder. I think it was for her abduction. Abduction, yeah, for the kidnapping. Because I do think if her body had been found, he would have been charged with her murder. There's a strong possibility that's the case, yeah. And I feel like they were whole, I mean, he's dead now, so, you know, it doesn't matter. But to me, uh, what happened with uh, not just uh, these two girls, but all the, there's another pair, and then you said another pair. There's several, there's a bunch of uh, cases here that to me, I'd really love to know what happened because somebody dropped the ball. And I I feel like, in cases where people are saying, like, for example, you said in uh, last week's episode, if somebody had taken action on Kay Turner in 1978 or 79 or 80 or 81 or 82 or any time in the intermediary, right, it would have put a stop to him being able to continue to murder people, young women, right? Or women. Yeah. Is unbelievable that they didn't do that. Well, it goes back. And I, I think your, uh, your general view of him was that if you go back to Marlene, who is um, considered to be his first victim and survived and right. you take her seriously, then you then you, you also have Kate Turner. Right. Um, one of my biggest problems with both of these cases, before we get into Bobby Jack, is this. Everything's still an open and active investigation in, in, in terms of uh, records. And that makes me angry. Because uh, reading through what Linda Snow has uh, given out and what uh, Ron Benson has given out, who are both investigators on both these cases, you read you know, a lot of what they're saying to build these numbers up and make these cases a big public problem. And I understand kind of what they're doing to try and get information about them. But then to just declare that we can't know how they arrived at that. And, you know, the the example I'm, I'm going to give you on Bobby Jack Fowler is from 2012. And really that's the only year that anybody talked about Bobby Jack Fowler. You know, it's, uh, I pulled an article. It's an, it's an old article from the province. Are you ready to move on to him for a second? We still talk about John Ackroyd in here. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, I pulled this because I wanted to sort of, like, like lay it all out in context and tell you some of the things that like really make me mad about this. Okay. This is a case from September. Uh, this is an article from September 26, 2012. Uh, you can still read it on the province.com. I think I pulled it from newspapers.com and it was written by Elaine O'Connor and it shows up in section A3. So it's like the main section of the paper, but it's not a headline case. Um, and, and I just want to like, you know, like throw this out there because it, it, it's back where we started. We started at the beginning of Yipana and um, this is how Fowler gets into that. Uh, the headline is Fowler may have killed 10 in BC. Project Yipana colon RCMP confirmed he was responsible for death of Colleen McMillan. 
The investigation into killer Bobby Jack Fowler, whom RCMP confirmed Tuesday took the life of Colleen McMillan in 1974, could evolve into a massive search to link deaths across BC and the U.S. to the work of a wide-ranging border-crossing serial killer. Okay, I want to think. I want you to think about this in time. This is September 26, 2012. Fowler died in an Oregon prison in 2006. He was a drug-using alcoholic transient roofer who could be responsible for the deaths of 10 B.C. women. RCMP confirmed at a news conference on Project Epana, which is investigating the deaths or disappearances of 18 women along highways 16, 97, and 5 in northern and central British Columbia between 1969 and 2006. RCMP are closely examining the deaths of 19-year-old Gail Ways of Clearwater, who disappeared October 16, 1973, and whose body was found in 1974. So those are going to be close in time to Colleen McMillan. And um, Pamela Darlington, also 19, of Kamloops, who was murdered and found in November of 1973 for links with Fowler. They believe that he was working as a roofer, in the Prince George area in 1974 for a defunct company called Happy's Roofing. Fowler has been eliminated as a suspect in eight of the Epana files, but he remains as a person of interest in the remaining cases. And this is Inspector Gary uh, Shinkaruk talking at the time. He's the officer in charge of the RCMP Major Crime Special Projects Unit up in British Columbia. McMillan was a 16-year-old girl from Laklahach who was last seen uh, leaving to hitch a ride to her friend's house on August 9, 1974. In September, she was found murdered off of a logging road 46 kilometers away. The news that her murder had been solved was both unsatisfactory but some comfort, her brother Sean McMillan said. Uh, he said this on Tuesday, the September 25th, at this news conference. He said, we're simply stunned and we're very grateful for their hard work, speaking of the police efforts. It has been a long wait for answers, and although it is a somewhat unsatisfactory result because this individual won't have to stand trial for what he did, we are comforted by the fact that he was in prison when he died and that he can't hurt anyone else. Uh, Staff Sergeant Wayne Clary, who we've talked about before, stressed that no one person is believed responsible for all of the 18 victim cases reviewed, but that there were three or four persons of interest. Some of the deaths are not likely serial in nature at all, but one-offs, police stress, which is what you and I have talked about the whole time. In fact, police revealed that they had spoken to two families about suspects who were likely responsible for the deaths of two women, but who have since died. We believe there are people out there who employed Fowler, worked with him, socialized with him, or even waited on him while he was in British Columbia. We are asking you to think back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s and your own memories of that time period. Then have a look at his photos and call us with any information uh, you may have about him. The Mounties are asking anyone with information on Fowler and his activities either in B.C. or the U.S. to contact them. And at the time, they had an 877 number you could call. U.S. authorities at the briefing said Fowler was a person of interest in another seven violent killings in Oregon and could have been involved in others across the U.S. Fowler died at age 66, and whose DNA was linked to McMillan only this past May of 2012, was also implicated in, but not convicted, of the killing of a man in Texas in 1970, 
It's actually a couple, and we can't find them yet. Um, he was convicted of it in 1970, but it's, we believe it happened in 1969 when he was 30. His own family reported to police they believe he killed and buried a family member who has never been found. In fact, police said that everywhere they looked to place Fowler over his life, they found evidence of homicides of women similar to those of the B.C. victims. Women who went missing or were found dead along the sides of highways after hitchhiking or leaving bars. In some cases, he had been known to pick up women in the company of another man. I don't know where that fact came from, but I'm not sure that it's a fact. But they're saying Bobby Jack Fowler had been known to pick up women in the company of another man. (sighs) Hold on. Officials painted a grim picture of the deceased U.S. convict as a meth and amphetamine addict, a boozer who worked as a general laborer, driving beaten up cars, living in motels, drinking in bars, and hitting the road for long stretches. They said he was a man who could be charming, but who could also turn violent in a heartbeat. Fowler also held sadistic and misogynistic views of women. People who knew him, victims who escaped him after assaults, told police he believed women who hitchhiked or went to drink in bars secretly wanted to be violently sexually assaulted. Investigators were able to shed some light on Fowler's personality and past using interviews with women who had survived his attacks tracking down and interviewing more than 70 inmates that had shared cells with him over the years. According to the RCMP, Fowler had an extensive violent criminal history with convictions in several American states for crimes that included attempted murder, assault with a dangerous weapon, sexual assault, arson, kidnapping, attempted sexual assault, and firearms offenses. He had no criminal record in Canada, which is one reason officers said he was hard to track, and he went virtually undetected here in the 1970s. We have no indication that Fowler had even been in B.C., Sinkarook said, noting Fowler had never even been fingerprinted in Canada, and without the assistance of DNA, we never would have solved this. So this is Elaine O'Connor, and uh, she says uh, Stephanie helped with files on this. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating uh, article. That's really that's the story that sort of kicks off Bobby Jack Fowler. I heard you snicker in there. What are you thinking? I actually don't know when I snickered. Uh, well, I laughed when the you company said, of the other man, right? And I was curious um, if you were implying that perhaps it was John Aykroyd. Well, okay, I'm not directly implying that here, Um, but but, um, it almost seems too asinine to be true, because then they really would look like basically Otis and Henry. Well, and Um, serial killers don't travel in pairs. I understand that. I am am not really going that Um, way. So that's the second, but that's the second thing they have in common that makes no sense to me. Do you understand why it makes no sense? Well, this is just one person talking, though. There's no, no information. This is the whole RCMP talking. This is part of their press conference about okay. him being in a picking up women with another man. This hits the wire, just like Israel Keys. Remember that thing they did in 2013 about Israel Keys? Well, so putting aside um, the DNA that was found. Okay, just for a second. 
I really would like to see uh, the immigration records because the last thing you just said was that, like, basically they have no record of him ever being in BC, right? You're talking about the border crossings, right? Correct. I'd like to see where he came back into the United States or where he went into um, British Columbia or something, right? I'm with you. Uh, because without that, I mean, if if what you're saying is accurate, what you just said, I mean, you're just, you know, you're giving the facts as were presented, right? Um, if they have, now, didn't he work at least in BC? Yeah, they, they tracked him all the way to a company. So called- what, what are they saying there where they don't have any idea he was in BC? Did I misunderstand that? Um, so happy, okay, so happy roofing is in Prince George. So they track him into Prince George, but they don't track him into British Columbia. Okay. These victims are largely in and around British Columbia, but it's still, I mean, it's still close in space and time. Well, okay, but he could have been in Prince George and not been in British Columbia, and the immigration stuff wouldn't matter. Correct. It bothers me that uh, Bobby Jack Fowler was found on um, her shirt, right? I know. Like, it was. it's so obscure. It really is. And so bizarre. Now, I don't know for certain that, like, it wasn't other places. I don't know if they even checked to see if it was other places because it could possibly just be that they happened to con- still have the shirt, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot, though, that makes me just wonder about that. Um, and well, you then, know, we had the whole John Arthur Aykroyd, Roger Dale Beck thing, right? Right. So then we have this implication here. It's weird, right? Uh, well, which implication? That, that he was in a bar that, with, or that he was that picking Bobby up Jack Fowler, another person? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that that's relevant. I don't know if it is or not. Um, I pulled up a couple of different things here. This is what I had been hoping to get. I had hoped, and, and I t- you already know this story, but the audience doesn't know. Um, it's been very difficult to get records on Bobby Jack Fowler and John Arthur Aykroyd beyond the limited press information that's been out there. Um, but one of the things I had hoped to get was NCIC hits. Um, because Linda Snow makes a comment that they would get these hits on Bobby Jack Fowler's cars on the Vins and on the plates of cars that Bobby Jack Fowler had owned. And she says they would then call those jurisdictions and those jurisdictions would have matching unsolved homicides. But that never materializes. Right. And if you're really interested in solving that, you would provide some of that information. Yeah, I think that, like, I think it's time. These are two serial killers that might or might not be serial killers, um, that more so than Otis and Henry, I believe that the record should be opened up about these guys, and I believe that we should be allowed to go through them, at least from a journalistic perspective. Otherwise, all we're left with is, like, these little dribs and drabs that that come out from these press releases 
where they're talking, you know, they're really trying to get more information about like a 1992 case or a 1995 case. Uh, Oregon Live, which is the series uh, of John Arthur Ackroyd articles I included in the show notes for the last thing, they also cover Fowler. And um, this is, uh, I'll pull up this thing and let you read it. They have a headline from October 29, 2012. So it's about a month after the article I just read. And it says, Bobby Jack Fowler, suspect in death of Newport teen girls, may have killed 20 or more people. Um, Newport. Investigators say the dead felon named as the prime suspect for the murders of two teenage girls here in 1995, may have been involved in 20 or more homicides over a two-decade period in the United States and Canada. Now, they are trying to determine if Bobby Jack Fowler killed as many as six females and one male in Oregon. So clearly, that's seven. Nine young women in British Columbia and others in Arizona and South Carolina. They have also found substantial new evidence that ties Fowler even more tightly to the deaths of the two teens, Jennifer Essen and Carolee, who I just talked about. They were last seen in a North Newport neighborhood in the early hours of January 28, 1995. Fowler was first named as a prime suspect in their deaths, a mystery for 17 years last month. So he becomes the prime suspect in September when this press conference goes out. He died of cancer in the Oregon State Penitentiary Hospice in 2006, but DNA evidence collected before he died is now being combined with other investigative work to find out if Fowler started killing women at least as early as 1974 and kept it up until arrested in Newport in 1995. The evidence against Fowler began to break in late September when Canadian police announced they had linked him through DNA to the 1974 death of Colleen McMillan, we just talked about, at the same news conference, Lincoln County investigator Ron Benson confirmed there's a strong connection between Fowler and the deaths of Essen and Lees, whose bodies were found about two weeks after they disappeared, bur- uh, buried in brush about a mile north of where they were last seen. Their hands were bound, and both of them had been strangled. Evidence linking Fowler to the numerous cold cases continues to grow. Most recently, a report from the National Crime Information Center, NCIC, shows that Oregon State Police ran a check on a car known to belong to Fowler three hours after Essen and Lees went missing. So they're saying that puts him there. Building the case is a slow and painstaking process involving researching old records from multiple jurisdictions, but it's bearing fruit. On October 22nd of 2012, Lincoln County Detective Ron Benson and cold case volunteer Linda Snow, who is a former legal assistant out of Deschutes County, They learned that the state police ran a check on Fowler's 1977 Dodge Monaco at 4.17 a.m. on the day Essen and Lings went missing in what was then known as District 2, which is an area that included Newport, Eugene, Salem, Florence, and Corvallis, but they did not run a check on Fowler. The car could have been sitting on the side of the road or in a parking lot or someone else could have been driving. Investigators knew that Fowler moved quickly, striking in one area, then driving hundreds of miles to establish himself in another. No, you don't. They don't. I don't know how they think they know that. Two weeks before Essen and Lees went missing, <laughs> NCIRC records placed Fowler in Arizona. But by February 1st, three days after the girls disappeared, Fowler turns up in Louisiana. We think that was how he tried to protect himself, immediately rabbiting to another part of the country and establishing himself there, said Benson. As police in Canada and Oregon uncover new evidence, police in other areas are taking a look at the itinerant roofer who had a criminal record beginning in his teens and then continuing for the next five decades until Lincoln County prosecutors put him away after he was arrested for beating up a Newport woman he met in a bar then threatened to rape and kill. 
What is interesting is we have all these NCIC list of contacts with Fowler, said Linda Snow. Every jurisdiction we call and ask, can you research and tell us why you ran a check on him? Then we explain our case, and every single instance, the detective said, we have a similar crime. The Canadian police had the same experience. Benson said, we call it a Fowlerism. In addition to the two cold cases in South Carolina, one in Arizona, Fowler is also a person of interest in three other jurisdictions. The police agencies in those areas are not ready to go public with their suspicions, Benson said. The trend is Bobby Jack Fowler picked up hitchhikers or girls in bars. Their bodies are usually found off logging roads or obscure isolated side roads, usually covered with brush, nude, and tied with binding. There are three other cold cases involving young women here. So we got Kelly Disney, 17, who disappeared about 1 a.m. on March 9th, 1984. And then in 1994, police found her skull in an abandoned car at Big Creek Reservoir at the north end of Newport. Investigators know that wasn't Fowler because he was serving prison time. He was serving time in a prison in Iowa. Fowler remains a person of interest in the deaths of Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson. They were from Sweet Home. They were last seen near Beverly Beach State Park in March of 1992, which is only two miles north of Newport. Uh, their bodies were found 20 miles east of Newport near Eddyville. After a recent story on Fowler ran in the or- Oregonian and hit the wire, Benson got a tip on that case. One guy called and said he thought he saw Bobby Jack Fowler on Hayes Creek Road in 1992. He was unfamiliar with the area, visiting people he knew, and there was this odd guy there, but he was adamant about it. He's so insistent. Fowler started killing as far back as 1969. That year, he shot a man and woman in Texas to death, but for those crimes, charged only with discharging a firearm in city limits. Police also know of at least two victims who survived encounters with Fowler, the most recent, June 1995, and that's the 35-year-old woman at the Chinook Winds Casino, which we've already told that story. You know, to think that, and this is what they say, Benson and Snow believe Fowler may be involved in some of the killings along a stretch of I-45 in League City, Texas, which just happens to be Fowler, Fowler's family hometown. To think this monster spent his whole life murdering women in the U.S. and Canada, nobody had a clue as to who he was or what he was doing, said Snow. We never looked at him as a possible suspect. He was able to fly under his the radar his whole life. Okay, I just want to point out something here. That's October 29, 2012. The story went out on the wire, went national. Big deal. So where's all this stuff at? Where's all of this, you mean? I don't 11, know. 11 years later, like, they're, you know, they're on the verge of all these things. But They were breaking a serial killer October 29, 2012, which is a really important date. They were what now? They were breaking a serial killer. Okay. told the world, guess who's still alive sitting in a jail cell? When this well, Keith was was still alive, sitting in a jail cell. Yep. I don't know that he would have known. I have this, no so. idea. I just think it's interesting that that's how long ago this was, because Keys is gone, been gone for a while. We talked about like when ten years passed. I find that interesting. But what I find more interesting is those eleven years that have passed since Keys has been dead. They had all this time with all the information about Ackroyd and. Um, well, Ackroyd's a little less because he's been alive a little longer because um, he dies in 2017. But with Bobby Jack Fowler, he died in 2006. This all comes out in 2012. And crickets. Crickets. Nothing. It's just nothing. They haven't said anything. Well, and so, you know, 
that's a lot of hype. Well, that's the time to give me the information or other people. Well, I mean, so here's the thing, though. If anything had come of any of that, it would have been just as, you know, sensationalized as that was. That's what I think. But my point is they don't even say we were wrong or we ruled him out. Um, well, that's because it stopped, I assume. I mean, I haven't heard any sort of definitive uh, clues to any of the cases you were just talking about. Uh, I, it may be more than just... Can you correct me if I'm wrong? Uh, Sheila Swanson and Melissa Sanders are said to have been murdered by both Bobby Jack Fowler and then separately also by John Arthur Ackroyd. Yeah, this and actually how I figured out who they meant there is the way this would work is all this information comes out about Bobby Jack Fowler in 2012. What they likely mean in these interviews that are more recent is that he is no longer a suspect and John Arthur Ackroyd is the suspect that they, in 2016 and 2017, were preparing to indict. But, um, and that's based on, if, if people watch the documentary, you will have heard this. Uh, we talked about it in an episode. That's based on some pretty circumstantial evidence where people saw him with blood on him. Uh, that it seemed to fit up timeline wise, and they may have been there may have been some evidence they could pull from that situation timeline wise as well. That seems to be that like they've dropped uh, Sanders and Swanson from Bobby Jack, and they've placed it on John Arthur Ackroyd. Maybe hopping dead serial killers. I don't know. But when you were just the thing that you just um, relayed. It was talking about the very same investigators talking about Bobby Jack Fowler being his vehicle being run. Correct. At the time that they were taken. Correct. That's, so they have no idea. They have no idea what's happening. Well, but they also mentioned in that previous article from the. He, they were not the working together. That's ridiculous. I, I know it's ridiculous, but I'm just saying. They weren't working together. In fact, no, I had found who it was that he was probably with, and it was a roommate of his. You don't, Eugene? I think so. I can't remember his I name, but uh, I don't know that I don't know that it was the same context as picking up like girls to kill them versus like picking them up like. Well, I've never figured out how Beck fits into John Arthur Ackward's life in the whole Kate Turner thing. Beck, Beck um, was probably promised something. I think he was promised money, maybe, or something like That's that. That's what I think. Um, I actually, I I don't believe for a second that there were two people involved in K Turner's. No, because, the, because of the footprints. The footprints, um, yeah. But the, he could have been like a disposal after the fact, or something like that. Or, um, he could have also just been talking when he confessed to his family or whatever. Like he could have just been running his mouth. Yeah, that's that's the thing to do at Thanksgiving is to just tell your whole family that Wasn't you killed someone. Wasn't it Christmas? Or, um, but it's got to be at least after that. I'm saying, you know, the next year at Thanksgiving. Because it's been Easter, so right? long, right? Yeah. We don't get a lot of the context. Like, did the family who said he had confessed, did they like him, right? 
Um, oh, there, there were multiple people, and it, they fell on both sides of the spectrum, and I could I could never make heads or tail of it. So potentially, Roger Dale Beck really had nothing to do with that, and he just is hanging out in prison forever. Um, is he still alive? I think he was the last time I looked. Um, I I honestly um. If he if he did it if he says like I killed her, um, then I it it's got to be one or the other because there weren't two people there to take her uh, when she was taken. Well, at some point during the pandemic, I remember seeing that like Beck was alive and like up for parole. I don't think he got it, and it was like he's been up for parole a bunch. So I think he's still alive, and I you know I think the argument could probably be made that he has nothing to do with it. I don't really think the context of the other idea of Bobby Jack Fowler, I think you're right. I think, I think it's just a roommate that's at a bar and maybe they pick him up thinking like this guy's going that way, this guy's going that way and nobody's going to say anything about it. Um, but I don't think you, they're murdering together. Did you notice uh, we earlier, we covered the news about the other uh, four Idaho uh, quadruple Idaho murder. Did you notice when, um, Brian Koberger was finally uh, apprehended and they made the announcement that, you know, they had a suspect in custody with regard to the University of Idaho quadruple murder. Did you notice how people came out of the woodwork with whatever they could possibly say if they happened to know Brian Koberger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like a lot of these sort of side remarks, like, oh, yeah, he was seen with another guy picking up women or whatever. I think it's that type of thing. Well, I could see that. Um, Because, like, you know, he was a loser. And, like, if it weren't for this, like, tiny spotlight of attention that they got just for a second, like they would have nothing to say about it. Right. Yeah. And so while it's, it adds, uh, you know, it adds static to the story basically. <sighs> um, but so frustrating. I find it, I really hope that I've misunderstood something, honestly, because I'm so confused about, the, the way that these guys have been intertwined, uh, they, as far as we know, they didn't know each other. They, uh, they, I would, I'm very confident they definitely didn't kill together. Serial killers do not kill together. It, it's, you know, two people cannot keep a secret as well <laughs> as <laughs> illustrated by um, Beck. Right. Correct. Correct. Okay. And so, you know, if, if that were the case and I, I don't know if that Beck was involved, I think that to the extent he was involved, it might've been, um, getting rid of her body. Now, if that's the case, I do believe that, um, she was his first murder victim if he involved somebody else to help him. But it's really strange that like he told everybody, right? <laughs> That's a really it's more than strange. That's a really strange thing. In fact, somebody that is confessing to their family that they murdered somebody probably didn't murder somebody. I'm just saying, okay? Just think about that. 
a lot of information about like how he ends up being convicted or he pled out or whatever. There's just not a lot available. Right. Yeah. And because of that, it muddies the water so early in um, John Ackroyd's case. Now I, I don't believe that he killed someone before he attacked uh, Marlene. Right. And didn't kill her and then picked right up and killed Kay Turner, right? Right. I believe that Kay Turner was probably his first murder victim. I, I, I don't know about you, but these things just, they continue to mix in my mind. And I have to constantly check to make sure that I'm thinking about the right situation. Because even the like cold case investigators are like intermingling things. All of these victims deserve a whole lot more justice than they got. And it's really troubling to me um, when the media is saying, you know, this guy could have been responsible for 20 murders, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's a big deal. Um, And I don't know. I, I just, I have an issue with that. It's a strange thing. Um, I've never fully understood how we make that leap other than like super copying. I thought if there was something real in this that by now uh, we would have like some more definitive lists. uh, You know, and I, I understand that like not all murders are solvable. But if you're calling somebody, you know, if they're saying you're spending money, this guy has killed 20 people or whatever. Like with Ackroyd, I firmly believe we would never know. With Fowler, if he's really killed 10, 20 people, even 10 people, then I think we should know something about him. And I well, think that we should have heard at least an update on the things he's been ruled out of. Well, okay, we got to keep in mind, Bobby Jack Fowler has, uh, there was DNA, his DNA found on uh At the time it happened, it was the oldest cold case to be cleared by a DNA comparison. And that was like a 1974 case. And so it was obscure. Uh, It was on her shirt, but it matched, right? And there could be circumstances that, you know, we could hear about and go, oh, that's absolutely understandable. Uh, Bobby Jack Fowler, uh, his DNA, and then he's caught at the scene of his last uh, crime, they arrest him, right? His Correct. victim jumps out the window. She's got a rope around her ankle. Okay, so, you know, in the very, very beginning, um, I, I say the very, very beginning, but I don't know. It was certainly 20 years, almost 20 years earlier. He leaves DNA behind, right? Yeah. And then 20 years later, like right before he goes to jail, basically, actually for the rest of his life, um, because he's taken into custody at the scene of that crime, and he serves the time for that crime leading all the way up to his death, right? Yeah. Okay. We really think that this dude killed 20 people. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't even have the right type of killer to get away with this in a way that we like, we should basically have found everything that both of these guys ever did. I am. I would like to know about, um, John Arthur Ackroyd. If he truly killed, um, people he knew and strangers, that's 
an interesting mix, right? That doesn't yeah. happen very often. But, you know, we don't know that. And unfortunately, we probably aren't ever going to know. I do think it's possible that all of the um, cases that have been looked at as possibly being uh, jo- uh, Bobby Jack Fowler being the perpetrator of, you know, it is possible that there were no shirts to check for DNA or whatever. It could be elements that aren't attributable to the perpetrator himself, but rather the investigation, right? Yeah. I just, I find it so incredibly difficult to believe because, you know, in the seventies and all the time, except the very end where these guys would have been operating as, you know, killers, they would have been completely unaware of, of what DNA was and how it could take them down. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if there really was anything to all these articles we see around the 2012 point where it says, you know, oh, we've got all these leads on these cases and we're going to, you know, link all, we're going to link this guy to all these murders. If all of that had been something now, 11 years later in 2023, like it would have already been something. I'm very, you know, sad that basically all that information that they're talking about in 2012, it didn't pan out. And it seems like it's just dead in the water. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. That's ultimately the reason this was named The Void. Okay, we'll have one more episode to sort of like talk a little bit more about this. I've got some specific cases I want to talk to you about from all these articles we've been pulling together. But I hope that people understand that The Void is not actually like the places that the killings are happening or the killings themselves. The Void is the information about them.